Thanks for tuning in to the Edifice Complex. Usually our episodes are family-friendly, but this one contains some mild profanity. Just a heads up, if you usually listen with kids in the car or are easily offended, proceed at your own risk. In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, Official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) I always love that. Uh, For today's episode, we're launching into what will be a very interesting discussion on agriculture, the food chain, and its impact on climate change and sustainability. Joining us today are special guests, Natasha Arsenievich and past guest, Andrew Bauerbank. Andrew is an internationally recognized leader in the principles of sustainability, clean technologies, and high-performance building construction, and is the global director of sustainable building services at Ellis Don. And recently, congratulations, Andrew, received the 2017 Ontario Premier's Award. So welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Joining us is Natasha Arsenievich, and Natasha is the Program Coordinator of Sustainable Building Services, also with Alice Dawn. Her bachelor and master degrees are in environmental studies, and one of her major papers looked at the relationship between industrial food production and women's rights in the United States of America. So welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And I must say, Robert, you pronounced my name very well. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You. Andrew, your story is already on record, and we encourage our listeners to go back and listen to broadcast number four to get uh, an insight to uh, Andrew's uh, ethos and his whole uh, persona and his whole views on uh, green and sustainability. But Natasha, you are new to the show, and so why don't you give us a brief history of how you ended up working for one of Canada's largest and leading construction companies? Well, I have to start off by saying that it's not going to be as cool as Andrew's and his martial arts and everything else, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I started off actually doing professional writing at York University, and one day we had a class talking about conspiracy theories, and someone put up their hand, a young gentleman, and suggested that, that climate change was a conspiracy theory. I don't know what set off in me, but I got very upset about that. And I found myself the next day going to the administrative office and I switched over to environmental studies for my major. Going forward, I just deep dived into learning about climate change. And I recognized that agriculture was a incredibly huge part of it, actually the largest part, and started just beginning my career in food system and trying to educate people on that. And I ended up doing a interview with Alice Dawn just randomly and to my surprise was given the position, even though I don't know anything about <laughs> construction or building sciences. Well, you do now. You do I now. do now, but I think I was well-versed enough in sustainability across the board that uh, Andrew had faith in me. So that's where I am today and I'm loving it. Awesome. Awesome. That's good. Well, I, what I like about your story is that you're bringing in adjacent thinking because one of the things the construction industry really suffers from is getting stuck in its own silo. So having 
some adjacent thinking, I think, is a key performance indicator going forward. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to say here. So, Andrew, before we get into Natasha's subject matter, can you give us a quick update on what's going on at the Yellowstone Carbon Impact Initiative, please? Yeah, sure. So, um, again, everybody can go back and listen to the original broadcast for the details of the program itself. But really, at the essence of it, when we launched it, I was really concerned that there was a lot of talk over media and even in social network groups that we had to have some kind of a strategy to respond to the UN's call to reduce emissions by 80% by 2050 from 1995 levels. And, you know, you have the Canadian government and every government stepping up and saying, yes, we will meet these targets. And you have great NGOs and not-for-profits doing education and advocacy. But as always, unless you get industry stepping up and finding the economic recourse through all this, we're not going to tip the markets to make those kind of aggressive cuts in emissions, especially from a Canadian standpoint. As everybody knows, huge resources, massive country, lots of transportation, It's like asking everybody in Canada to turn every building into a LEED Platinum certified building as a base start. And that's, you know, impractical to look at. So we have to find out what the solutions are. And for me, the Carbon Impact Initiative was the mechanism to get some of the largest companies in the country together to put our brains together and create projects that respond to the call to action from governments and NGOs. So it's bringing industry strongly at the table and then taking the lead in that process. And what I mean by that is, we, we can't just deliver reports and speak and encourage and ask. And, you know, we have to start building the projects that make that difference and use those projects to showcase that things are possible, but at the same time also educate the leaders that will do the next round of projects to showcase the fact that it can be done with off-the-shelf technology. It's not more expensive, and we are already educated well enough to take on the mantle of bringing down these emissions, and there is return on investment. So part of our efforts within the Carbon Impact Initiative is to develop pilot projects to net zero energy or net zero emissions. It's somehow tracking the emissions during construction and into operations. It's looking how do we introduce new technologies to the market where clients might be apprehensive at at looking at new technologies. And then, as I said, it's the return on investment as action item number four. So what we've done since last we've talked We've just finishing completion now on Ontario's first institutional net zero energy building at Mohawk College, uh, the Joyce Centre. And we've just flipped the switch on the solar panels. And in fact, there's so much solar on, on the building and in the adjacent buildings uh, on the campus that we are generating more energy than the building is expected to need. That's so it's actually going to be... Yeah, it's actually been a good economic revenue story for the college itself. Uh, not only are they saving the utility bill, but they might be generating more energy that they can either sell back or use in other for other purposes. You know, we one of the things we did is because it was the first net zero energy building, not only in Ontario of this size, but it's the first one for Ellis Dawn as a company and everybody involved. So I thought it was really important to create a lessons learned report, and I'll talk a bit more about that later, and and that's just been published. But now we've got the Evergreen Brickworks project that we're working on. This is a big retrofit of a heritage project of the famous Evergreen site. This is where they 
I originally made all the bricks for the city of Toronto way back in these uh, 1800s, I believe. And so this retrofit will be going towards carbon neutral and we're just finishing up or in the middle of second phase of construction now on that. And one of Natasha's main projects here is, is actually working at with an Excel spreadsheet, tracking all the emissions from trucks coming and going and energy oh. and materials. A bit daunting, isn't it, Natasha? It is the most fun I've ever had. Can you tell us sarcastic? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think I think we have to realize that we're asking for things like net zero emissions buildings and carbon neutral, but it, there's so much paperwork involved in that and the tasks are so mundane. Yeah. You know, it's really going to be a bit of a barrier, I think. And and so one of the things that we're doing is developing a, a tool. It's an app-based tool to to track the emissions and make it more effective and efficient for us to do that. And we've got a large grant from the federal government and Ontario Centers for Excellence to engage University of Toronto to actually help us figure out the research and development, what types of things do we need to start tracking and how are we going to do that? More importantly, not only do we want to track emissions during construction, because no one's really doing that properly, but how do we have a tool that stays with the project so the client can continue to monitor and evaluate the emissions of their project going forward. And I think that's key, is that transition from construction to operations. You know, one of the things that I'm very strongly pushing for is changing procurement models so that we can get companies that are there from the beginning, especially from design to construction, who have FM teams mm. that can also be engaged for full life cycle services because these buildings are going to be very sophisticated difficult to maintain and if our job is net zero anything we've got to operate these things appropriately you can't just turn it over to a regular building management services company Agreed. and so that's going very well at brickworks still uh, quite a ways to go but the leadership at brickworks has been fantastic as as it was at mohawk as well and you know we'll talk about this a little bit later which is our hidden secret is a brand new project that will be a first for canada that unites agriculture building science and technology all together. But I'll leave that there for now and we'll come back to that exciting news. Uh, that's awesome. I just got a couple of quick questions on that then. So on the buildings you've done so far at Mohawk and the one that's ongoing at Brickworks, are they going to have any green building certification or are we just going straight for a net zero evidence-based? Straight, straight for net zero and emissions. Um, right. You know, At this point, everybody involved knows how to build these types of buildings. Right. Certification right. isn't that much required. Although the Mohawk College is a part of the Candergreen Building Council Zero Emissions Framework Program. Right. So it was the first pilot project in our carbon impact initiative from a practical build standpoint. That's what we're trying to get out of it. And the Canada Green Building Council wants to use it as a mechanism to educate the marketplace. So it's a pretty good collaboration, as I mentioned earlier, from industry, academic, uh, and NGO in this case. But there's no real certification like LEED or something like that. Okay, I'm, I'm interested in that because the you know whenever you say oh it's net zero, so there's a there's a sort of burden of evidence required for that. So is there a an ongoing sort of evidence based data gathering based project going on now yeah, the building's it's, it's in operation? Yeah, it's called your utility bill. <laughs> <laughs> if you're generating as much energy on site as you use, you're yeah. going to know pretty quick if you're actually doing that, right? right? That's cool. I like that. I'm a big. I'm trying to coin a phrase with my Z-list status as a industry pundit. As a, I'm trying to coin a phrase for evidence-based design and evidence-based building operation. So, you know, there's a lot of puffery out there at the moment and yeah. – you know, you just 
it, that puffery could easily just be blown away with some great projects with some evidence and some data behind them, you know? That's what, mm-hmm. that's the next step. And I think you're on the path to that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's really one of our goals, not only with our, our tool that we're developing, but, and again, you know, I think listeners have to, and maybe they do know this already, but they've got to remember that, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords out there right now, right? Everything yeah. from net zero, whatever that might be. But in our case, we're talking about net zero energy and we're talking about net zero emissions. Those are two completely different things. Yes, yeah. They can Indeed. work well together, but a net zero emissions building is not necessarily a net zero energy building. Correct. And yeah. you, can have, you can have a net zero emissions and offset that through many other mechanisms. Net right. zero energy is really looking at your bottom line with your utility bill. Right. right. So I think you have to be very careful that the listeners continue to understand that, you know, what is your target and what is your goal with your project? Yeah, interesting. I have a question for actually for the three of you, and that is, is that lately Adam and I have been talking with a number of people from the Royal Institute of uh, Chartered Surveyors. And I got to be thinking there's a role for them to play in this. You know, and I don't know, Andrew and Natasha, if you're familiar with what chartered surveyors do. I'll let you answer that question. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I haven't, for me, maybe Adam might be even better yeah. answering this than I am because, I don't know, Adam, what do you think? Well, I'm actually a registered child surveyor, believe it or not. I was supposed to be coming to Canada to have a career as a big property developer. It just didn't pan out that way. <laughs> So, I mean, now, why I say that? Why I say that, Adam? Is yeah. that there's an organization with 125,000 qualified members. Their whole existence is, is about quantity surveys. You know what goes in, how much, yeah. what, like the budgeting. It seems to me the extension of energy should be something they should be looking at, or at least working with the construction industry on these types of programs. Well, I am, it seems like they it seems like they'd be a, a, a very useful resource. I'm chipping away at this a little bit with them and. The next president of the RICS is going to be from the facilities management faculty. So I believe there's a role. So a chart surveyor is like a, a property development economist who understands technical drawings, who is also a contract administrator, all these roles into one, right? They could also be extended to be people who provide and verify evidence of building performance and also yeah. evidence of building performance on handover, right? They could become a certifying body. They're already doing that in terms of completion and PFI loans. So I think there's a role to play there, and I think they want to play it. The problem in North America is North America is a bit of a bubble, and RICS are only just starting to come to prominence here, whereas in other parts of the world they have a lot of prominence. So I think over time that might evolve. But yeah, it's an interesting thing because when you bring evidence-based requirements into contracts, things start getting a bit serious, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And there's not a lot of that going on at the moment. There's a lot of, I mean, some jobs I've worked on in North America, the contractor goes, yeah, I'm done. And everyone goes, okay. And everyone walks away and it's not done. And it's crazy. Now, I'm not saying there's Don's in that camp because they're one of the better ones. And clearly with what they're doing here at the bleeding edge of net zero, there's a lot to be applauded there. So, but you know, Alice Don's a market leader, right? Yeah. I mean, Natasha, I mean, you're, you mentioned you having to build an Excel spreadsheet to track all of this stuff. And I got to be thinking that, you know, organizations like RICS, if they could have a database because they're global, you yes. know, and if there's a way for such a large organization to start tracking emissions of construction projects, that that would be a useful tool for you and your endeavors at LS Dawn. I, I think there's a play there somewhere, Adam. I know the president of uh, RSCS at the moment is a Canadian guy based in Toronto. Maybe I should intro- I might put him in touch with you guys after this podcast because they have a budget for these sort of things. 
they pay for research. So I'll uh, I'll reach out to John and put him in touch with Natasha, see if there's any, and Andrew, see if there's any way, there's some way they can help each other. Yeah, I think that would be great. I think that another thing we have to figure out is how they would interact with some of the current government bodies that are also trying to do the same thing. Yeah. So yeah. there's uh, NRC, National Research Council, that has reached out to us to see how their efforts towards building a national database of EPDs, environmental product declarations, can work with our tool. Right. So I think a lot of people are doing or trying to pick at pieces of this, but what's missing is is a unified voice and bringing together efforts or else we're all just kind of doubling efforts and mm-hmm. you know reinventing the wheel, which we want to avoid, I think. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's a lot of players and it somehow needs to be rationalized and brought together, I think, right? Yeah. I think Jerry Eulison, one of our past guests, said there were over 600 building programs around the world. Yeah, 600 green building certification programs, which is probably 599 too many. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing uh, knowing Jerry, he's not a fan of uh, reading tools in general, right? No. No, his latest book is about sports. (laughs) You can get from that. (laughs) More power to him. Um, Yeah. So, but to Natasha's point, you know, yeah. that there can't be so many voices in the wilderness. We have to get that consolidated down one somewhere or another. Yeah, we do. Now, I, I want what I want to talk about, if we can, is move on to uh, Natasha's subject area where we're talking about how agriculture, the food chain, the industrial food chain impacts sustainability because buildings are a big impact on the environment, but they're not the only impact, right? And how we feed ourselves is probably even a bigger impact. Would you agree with that, Natasha? Yeah, I think what's particularly scary about this topic is that there's a general lack of knowledge about our food system. So whether it's understanding where bacon comes from, 22% of British adults, there was a survey, did not know that bacon came from pigs, for example. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, 22%, that's a quarter, quarter of the adult so- population. That's so, from Adam. That's from Adam's homeland. Is that yeah. Adam's homeland? <laughs> Those are my people. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I gotta, um, I'm going to ask Natasha to explain this too because the one that really got me that she told me about was the dairy cow situation and milk. And yes, people felt yes. that milk just automatically came from these cows on 24 seven basis. Yeah. So I, I, one of the biggest myths which I find inc- just disturbing is that. Many people really think that dairy cows, because we've labeled them as dairy cows, that somehow they are a breed, a special breed that scientists created that automatically have milk all the time and that you have to milk them for their health because or else their udders are going to explode or something. You know, I've actually heard this from people. So (laughs) (laughs) they fail to realize that a cow is just a cow. It doesn't matter if we call it a beef cow or a dairy cow and a female cow has to be impregnated in order to lactate like any other mammal. And that simple fact has also been missed in our food knowledge. So when we're talking about climate change, we need to talk about the biggest piece of the puzzle, which, which is agriculture. It's like the earth is, is a sinking ship and yeah. there are 12 holes and agriculture is the biggest hole, but we're choosing to fill the little ones first. And they don't understand that thought process. Is it? I think that you know so- we need to start looking at what's sinking us and also bring in, to Andrew's point, some other sectors so that we do have that cross-collaboration mindset and that others are on board. Or else, if we continue working in silos, I don't think we're going to get our feet off the ground with this one. I think there's two problems here, right? One is it's such a big problem 
that it's it's almost like uh, population control, right? It's a big, nasty problem no one wants to talk about. And the mm-hmm. other thing is it's sort of hiding in plain sight. People just don't know about it, in my opinion. Would you agree with that? I completely agree. I think that it's not that people don't want to make a change. They just don't know that there's a problem in the first place. And unfortunately, when we talk about agriculture, there are different subsets of people that, you know, whether it's focusing on plant-based diets or animal rights, often people shut down or, or tune out or get defensive. And then the conversation ends. Okay. So there has to be a way to talk about agriculture in a way that speaks to most people. So whether that's through economics or through health or obviously climate change. I think those are the three points we have to focus on when we talk about agriculture. I mean, although there are a myriad of other points, um, those are the three that I think are the most relevant to everyday people. I think the problem with climate change and agriculture is that they're long-term problems and people are inherently short-term machines, right? So you can't see me now. But What makes me nervous is that, you know, we've been focusing, Adam, you and me specifically, on change the building sector yeah. for decades and still only 18% of the of the market of the sector market can be classified as a green building so if we can't tap that with programs like lead that have been fairly successful even with all the issues and problems you know how are we possibly going to tackle the other problems if we can't even tackle the stuff that we think we know about right yeah absolutely That's now you can't see me here but I'm putting my tinfoil hat on now <laughs> and I'm getting into my libertarian mindset. So is it because it's also an inherently political thing, right? So there's there's food security, which is a strategic issue for every nation. There are food subsidies. There's the farm lobby. There's farm subsidies. I mean, half the issue with the Brits in the EU is the farm subsidy, right? Yes. So yes, yes, yes. how does that unpick itself? <laughs> Obviously, you've got the answers, Natasha. Just give them to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I, want, I actually want Natasha to talk about something specifically that, yeah. that she's championing, that we're both kind of involved in, which is, which is Nations Rising. Can right. you do that? Yeah, yeah that, that, that'd be good. So subsidies is a great point. I just actually posted an article on LinkedIn a few moments ago All about right. the University of Guelph releasing a paper a couple of years ago that highlighted the relationship between the federal conservative party and their very liberal farm subsidies because a lot of their constituents are conservatives. So there is a political play when we're talking about agriculture. So what happens is the federal government, if it is, has historically been conservative, has given to the farms for poultry, dairy, and egg, and they give upwards of 8 million billion a year, I should say. And what that means is that the food becomes cheaper. Right. People will buy it over, you know, broccoli. And then that cycle continues because there's no other options. And then you have our food guide, which has been influenced by industry. So we have uh, the dairy and meat section, for example, instead of it being called protein. So um, recently there has been a a draft to change that. And what's interesting is that they have taken away red meat now from the food guide and they've added tofu. And they've also added soy and almond beverage instead of having just milk. So There are some small changes, but it does come back to subsidies. And the group that we are currently supporting is called Nations Rising. They are doing a rally in mid-July, July July 14th at Parliament Hill to combat this issue. They want to highlight to the public and to government that, you know, we have changing needs. Our consumption habits have changed. Uh, Dairy has dropped 25% in the last 20 years in Canada, yet it still receives subsidies. Um, So 
why aren't our subsidies going towards the evolving farming practices like soilless farming, like hydroponics or aquaponics, or farmers that want to switch from, let's say, cattle to growing organic vegetables? There currently are no government programs or subsidies to help these farmers. So then they're locked into what they're currently doing, even though they may want to change. So Nations Rising is a group that's really trying to highlight the subsidy issue and to bring money from the government towards affordable food for low-income communities, Indigenous communities, as well as just restructuring our economic support for the current agricultural sector. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. So there's a sort of macro and micro level here, right? The macro level is strategic, it's political, it's big money. But at the micro level, the individual level, there's health issues here, right? That's without any of the consequential side effects. Serious health issues. Yeah, so do you want to run through those? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a little scary. So (laughs) in 2015, the World Health Organization wrote a report officially stating that processed meat, which would be considered like bacon, sausages, any kind of deli meats, is group one carcinogenic. So it is just as cancer-causing as tobacco. Ouch. Yes. And red meat, like pork or beef or lamb, which we should really call it as pig and cow. We just, we have this cognitive dissonance by disconnecting what our food items are. You know, children don't even know that chicken is chicken. They think chicken is some foreign thing, but then when they find out it's actually a living bird, oftentimes they don't want to eat it until their parents (laughs) tell them they need to, to be healthy. But the red meat is a group 2A carcinogenic, which is classified as probably carcinogenic. So it's the second highest group. And and if a doctor tells me this is probably going to cause you cancer, I would suggest you not eat that item. So so health-wise, it is carcinogenic. It's also linked to type 2 diabetes, heart disease, clogged arteries. I don't know how graphic I can get onto this program, but we we also... Ask me what I had for breakfast this morning. Go on. (laughs) I'm scared too. So I had I had the most high maintenance bacon sandwich in the world: lean oh, bacon no. sandwich, grass fed butter, brown oh, HP yeah. sauce. Oh mm-hmm. no! You climate change contributor, you. Yes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling shame, extreme shame at the moment. Yoda, you're Yoda, you're evil. <laughs> yeah. But you what can't. Might t- be, what might be of interest to you guys in particular, which we actually watched a, a film recently called The Game Changers, and it right. speaks to extreme athletes. Olympic athletes and how they switch to a plant-based diet and how their performance eating traditional diets. And one of the things that this movie talked about was a study done with men and eating plant-based and erections. 
And what they found was that- Go, go people, ahead. You got my yeah, attention. Men, <laughs> men who eat plant-based actually have better, longer erections and men who eat meat have less frequent so on and so forth. Well, that's right. We have, we have, well, that's we have now game over. Yes. <laughs> we have now crossed over. We have officially crossed over. What I, what I love about this movie, what I love about this movie, guys, is it's produced. It was produced by James Cameron. That's what I love about that movie. Oh, awesome! It's one of my favorite. Like Canadians. James Cameron, who's the head of Avatar, producing a movie like yeah, this, yeah, and yeah. it really is based in science. Yeah, you know that at least the message is close to going mainstream. So yes. that's exciting. For me, right? Yeah, absolutely. So but getting into the actual climate change impacts, I think this is where yeah. people don't understand. So according to the World Bank, 51% of all greenhouse gas emissions on a global scale is the result of animal agriculture. Sorry, say that number again? 51%. 51%. Yeah. So, 5-1. Yes, 5-1. We're not just talking about belching cows here. We're talking about the whole process, the system, everything involved in processing the meats as well as the animal and even the amount of water and land used to feed the animals that we eat. So, yeah, I'll get into, I mean, I'm going to give you a couple of facts here. I mean, we can end on a happy note, don't worry, but just to, <laughs> to give you a little, bit of, <laughs> a little bit of an Armageddon. Yeah. Wow. We're, this, this talk has gone from, from erections to Armageddon. Yes. To <laughs> we need Bruce Willis to fix this. Come on. <laughs> about the methane produced from cows, which is a lot. I mean, one cow produces 250 to 500 liters of methane a day. That translates to 150 billion gallons of methanes a day globally. But the problem is that methane is 28 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. So it is substantially worse than CO2. Wow. Beyond that, if we're looking at our use of resources, 40%, 40% of all of the grain produced in the world goes to feeding cattle. Wow. So most, almost half of all of our grain is feeding an animal that we are killing. And that animal is only feeding a fraction of the people that the grain could have fed. Yeah. So that's a little upsetting in terms of looking at equity and starvation around the world. If we had used our resources more wisely, we would not have world hunger. So a lot of people think that it's a population issue. I would argue that it's just irresponsible resource use and inefficient resource use. I like the antibiotic. Yeah, yeah. the antibiotic one's kind of scary. So 80% of all antibiotics sold in the United States goes to livestock. So when you are eating meat from the States or if it's imported to Canada here, then that means that you are ingesting those antibiotics because they do not filter through our system. So we essentially collect these antibiotics in our body, which leads to a host of health impacts, including hormone imbalance. And immunity so we, to disease, right? Immunity exactly. to antibiotics. Antibiotic resistance, exactly. Yeah. Which has led to superbugs and everything else. So I think it's amazing how doctors are trying to say, let's cut back on using antibiotics on people that are sick. But that's just you know, that's the iceberg thing, right? That's just scraping a bit of ice off the top. But yeah. if, you're, if you're constantly consuming the meat that is laden by antibiotics, it just doesn't make sense. You know, I think we're totally out of whack in our communication structure and our belief system and what's going on. Yeah, my old project management professor at university would call this a massive misallocation of resources. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And I think by 2050, we're going to have a population of nearly 10 billion. 
And according to the UN, we will need agricultural landmass the size of Brazil to feed that population. So that landmass does not exist now, which means that we need to produce food in an ever-growing urbanized population. Right now, 26% of Earth's ice-free land is used for grazing. So a quarter of our land is used for cattle, which again is slaughtered, which is only feeding a small percentage of the world. And a really sad one is Amazon. So a lot of people hear about palm oil affecting the Amazon rainforest, but really 91% of all Amazon rainforest destruction is the result of animal agriculture because it is cleared to create soy and corn and wheat that is fed to cattle. (laughs) Uh, Indonesia and Brazil are being decimated right at the moment for all sorts of bad reasons, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and we've desertified a lot of our land as well. So a lot of the topsoil is gone, which means that we're pumping more pesticides into the land to try to to get something out of the infertile land. And so it's just a cycle that's constantly going on until we make some systematic changes. Well, you know, it just occurred to me that this becomes a corporate battle. You know, when you start talking about crops and fertilizer and hormones, you know, companies like Monsanto, for example, right? They obviously have a huge vested interest in this, as do the pharmaceutical companies. So the battle is, I think, Andrew, you talked about the iceberg. I mean, the battle... I, the, you know, we're talk, We're very much talking about the tip of the iceberg. The big battle is underneath the water with, at the corporate levels, isn't it? Exactly. And this goes back to, again, where certain efforts are put. So if our government continues to subsidize an industry that is slowly not only poisoning us, but our planet, then wow. it's harder for businesses that are holistic in nature, that are focused on sustainable or organic farming or plant-based alternatives like wow. the Beyond Meat Burger, for example, if those industries do not get the support, it's a losing battle. It's like David and Goliath. How can you win against these right. massive corporations that have billions of dollars and you know a, a building full of lawyers? It's nearly impossible unless the public starts to change their consumption habits. I think my opinion right. on everything is the only real power left in the world. We live in a world where basically if you've got a mobile phone, you can be droned, right? So the yes. only real power in the world is aggregate demand. If everybody stopped doing something, that is the only way things can change. It's almost a form of passive resistance, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, if- And that's what a plant-based diet is to me. Yeah. It's my own rebellion against the system because um, mm. I'd rather pay a dollar more for something that is organic or you know, a couple of dollars more for a fake burger than a real one because that means that that's being tracked. And they're looking at people that are consuming these items and recognizing that there is a rise and an interest in alternative foodstuffs. So just to be devil's advocate there, I'm feeling a bit triggered if I was a from an underdeveloped country where I didn't have, you know, I was living on $5 a day or something. Yes. So, you know, how do you deal with that? That's also a misconception. A lot of people think that if you are plant-based, that you are spending more money on grocery bills. Right. But if you, if you look at your grocery bill and you, you go to the cash what is the most expensive items? It's the steak, it's the carton of milk, it's the eggs, it's the cheese. The least expensive item is is the bag of apples and the peanut butter. Right. So I think a lot of it has been purposefully set that way so that not only is it large corporations, but those that have vested interest in these corporations, they have misinformation, like everything else, where they try to confuse public and then the public doesn't really know what is right, what's wrong. I mean, look at the, the debate on eggs for, I think, decades. It, the, yeah. the cholesterol, is it good for you? Is it bad for you? 
it's nonstop, the fad diets. So I think it's just that's <laughs> a result of our that's modifications of everything, right? Are those yeah. ad- diets you know yeah the keto and everything <laughs> so I, I was thinking about knowing this we were doing this podcast today i was thinking about possible solutions here right one of the things i've found out recently and i'm, not, I'm an english guy who's never touched a gun in his life and i don't hunt you know i'm a city boy but the greatest impact on animal conservation and the biggest contributor to animal conversation on every level including money are hunters unless <laughs> you provide create value in animals being hunted they go to extinction it's the only way you bring them back right Mm -hmm. so how do you create value so is that a solution to this problem do you make it more valuable either from i guess from a health point of view it is but people don't know it but you have to create it it has to be more valuable to be to eat less meat than not right yeah and i think i think the value speaks for itself which is a great thing about this problem because I think it's actually an easy solution. It's not only are you saving money every week when you go to the grocery store, you're healthier. And if you are environmentally conscious, then you are, you're doing everything you can, the the greatest impact by changing your diet. So I think that the value is there. I think the biggest thing to overcome is the social or cultural stigmas around it. Yes, culture, right? It all comes down to culture. It comes down to education and culture, ultimately, I think. Yeah, Adam, you'll probably relate to this. I mean, yeah. this is, when I was growing up, and my dad and probably your dad and you, but after World War II, or even before World War II, you know, we were eating, what, red meat as a, as a luxury once a month? Cool, yeah, I remember. It was a big thing if we had steak big once thing. a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then it was maybe a, something like a roast beef dinner on a Sunday or with yeah. family. It was never a – but now – we have people feel like they have to eat meat at every meal they sit down to. Mm, yeah, that's and true. I think yeah. that's a bit of the problem as well. We're we're well over the top of what's necessary. And the thing that I loved in that movie that we were talking about earlier, you know, the game changers that I thought was amazing, and a few other things I've seen. There's nothing that has ever been said medically where people have actually been in the hospital because of protein deficiency. Yeah, that's yeah. never happened. So people say, oh, you're not going to get enough protein. But, you know, there's actually more protein in broccoli than there is in beef. Because protein, you know, the biggest animals in the world are herbivores. Yes. Right? So where do they get their protein from to grow that big? It's from the plants. So all of these misnomers that we're currently growing up with to make us keep eating your bacon sandwich in the morning and then something you're going to have for lunch and you're going to go home and have some chicken or fish for dinner, it's not – sustainable in any regard from that perspective i agree there's an inflection point coming and you can be on the wrong side of that right if you don't do it yeah if you're not if you're not get if you're not being woke to user Uh, it's hard though right because some people i mean i understand it yeah i still eat meat although i must admit i've eaten a lot less meat since i've been following what's going on with you guys but (laughs) And I, I go back to what Andrew was saying there. I remember when I was brought up, you know, once or twice a week was a big deal to have meat, and I'm trying to get back to that. But you don't want to look like, uh, I, you know, you, you talk to your friends about it, and you don't want to sound like you're being a bit of an asshole and trying to convert them, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, but weren't, but weren't we like that when we were trying to convert people to green buildings? Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just the same story again, and it, we're just trying yeah. to find a different sector, right? I mean, everything yeah. has its impact. I remember when we I first started getting involved in green buildings, they're going, oh, come on, you're painting your building green, you're going grass in your <laughs> and, and nobody cared. And, and yeah. it took 20 years of pushing to start 
having people realize that it's right. a better product. Yeah. And as a green building, electric vehicles, you know, I was involved in that development in Ontario for infrastructure. It's a better technology to IC engines. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. zero to 60. It goes way faster. You don't get a ticket going zero to 60. So hit that pedal. You get a ticket when you start hitting the horsepower and going faster for longer durations. So mm-hmm. the, it's always that better. And right now, a plant-based diet is a better health. It's better for the environment. Since I've been vegan, you know, I just got back from the doctors and I looked at my, uh, my blood work. Right. He said, mind you, I still work out every single morning. And, you know, as you know, I used to be a coach for the Pan Am Games. So professional athletics is in my life. But my hemoglobin is so good at 51 years old. I have the hemoglobin of someone who's an elite athlete or someone who's used to climbing high altitudes like mountain climbing. Right. And the inflammation in my joints before I went vegan, I would have to take an anti-inflammatory every day from all the years of sports and everything had taken a toll on my body. Since I've gone vegan, the inflammation in my body has disappeared. I haven't had have one anti-inflammatory since I went vegan a year and a half ago. Wow, that's so interesting. This is, all, this is all real data from practical experience from a health standpoint. So it's not that we're going to get pushback. And, you know, everything gets a stigma to it. So if we say things like lead, well, people start pushing back after a while because they've heard it yeah. too much. Yeah. If you keep saying vegan, you're going to start getting the same kind of pushback. For me, it's better to say plant-based diet. Yeah. I mean, it's a diet that is avoid of meat and it's for a purpose. It's a healthy purpose. It's way better for you. And I see, I think that's what stimulates the conversation a little bit better. Agreed. So I want to talk about vertical farming. I know that's something you guys are involved in. We put a pin in that earlier. So I've been a big fan of this. I tried to invest in it a little while ago and it, there's, there's not many investment opportunities for it. But what I like about it is it brings together sustainability, adaptive reuse of old buildings, husbandry and and good custodians of energy and water so can you speak about that yeah sure and in fact um this area this is why i brought natasha on my team right uh, because about I, I guess maybe even adam you remember before i was on at ellis dawn when i'm doing my keynote presentations i was talking about the the idea of vertical farming as the next yeah. leading wave of technology and opportunity and when I came on to Ellis Dawn, there was a project I was working on that I brought with me, and it's Centennial College, and now uh, University of Toronto is also engaged as well. We are on track, uh, fully approved by the college, and companies are coming on board now, to develop Canada's first large-scale commercial aquaponic hydroponic vertical farm. Now, this is a 200,000-square-foot facility. Right. It's multi-stories, but it's not just about growing plants. This is about changing mindsets. It's about innovation. Yeah. It's about agriculture and agricultural technologies. How do we provide the innovative resources to grow businesses that want to get into urban farming as a, as a proper large business practice? So it really becomes an innovation center. But the building itself, this is where Adam crosses what Natasha is good at and what you and I are good at. Because the building, yes, it's going to be teaching in, about indoor farming and vertical farming and the technologies incorporating that. But it's also going to be a net zero energy, water, and waste building. So that. it's that combined, yeah, combined cross-sector leadership that is going to be so powerful for us when we do this. Um, I said it was greenlit. We've got the initial plans in the works right now. We're going to do a formal workshop towards the end of the summer. We're engaging leaders from across the sectors to come and join us in this. And I think you know this has been very exciting for Natasha because she's on the committee with me at Centennial College. Maybe Natasha, talk a little bit about your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, when I first came on board to Alice Dawn, 
I, of course, was excited to be a part of an amazing opportunity, but I really had my passion and my roots in food system. So when I found out about this project, I thought this was brilliant because at least it, it, it marries my passion with my current position. So I was really excited to learn about this. But really the point of the building, like Andrew was talking about, is not only to demonstrate what is possible with growing indoors, it's also to push the envelope. Right now we do microgreens really well inside right. and even strawberries here and there. But can we get to a point where we can grow pineapples or, or coconut indoors? <laughs> you know? might, be, might be a bit extre- extreme. It might be extreme, yeah. but I think in the future we, we certainly can do it. It's just that we need to dedicate space and time and programming to it. And the other part of it is students having a, a place to really learn this. Where I went to school at York, they don't have a food focused program at all. So I actually had to, in my master's, make up all of my classes with the help of professors because they didn't offer anything that I wanted to learn. So I think a lot of it is that agriculture is somewhat devalued. You know, the average farmer is 58 years old. So we need to have a new generation that's going to be pioneering this, right? Or else we're going to, we're going to lose it. And with the globalization that we do have, there's a lot of insecurity there. When we're looking at vulnerability, food security, once climate change really makes its impact and we are getting all of our food elsewhere, well, those places might be disrupted by floods or fires or drought. And then our food security is compromised. So we need to start learning how to grow food in an urban context. And vertical farming, I think, is one of the best options we have in combination with other farming methods. The fear I have is that we become centralized again. And the point is to decentralize our food system. So we have to look at, you know, the vertical farming is one option, but also looking at rooftop gardening, also looking at green infrastructure where food is being grown at the side of the building. So not just inside and, you know, community gardens, we have to look at everything. Well, there's resilience in that model, right? Where you've got lots of little places where things are going on and you're reducing logistical issues, you're reducing carbon footprints in terms of lorry movements, water movement. Exactly, exactly. So I personally believe, so when I left school many years ago, in fact, 1980, that's how old I am, the future, I didn't notice at the time, but the future belonged to bankers and stockbrokers. It was all about financialization. But I actually truly believe today the future belongs to farmers and artisans. And that's where the money's going to be. You know, lawyers and financial institutions are going to be overridden by blockchain and software. And it's going to be people who do real things that are going to make the money in the future. I think vertical farming has got to be one of the greatest investment themes in the future coming. I would invest, if there was a REIT that did this, a real estate investment trust for our overseas friends, I would buy that tomorrow. I would back the truck yeah, I think I think it's also out of necessity too, Adam, right? It's yeah. not something that's a movement within a market because it's the, the fad of the day. Yeah. It's a necessity thing that we that's going to happen whether we like it or not, right? I agree, yeah. yeah. It's coming. I mean, for for our listeners, I mean, one of the one of the buildings that you could look at online is One Central Park in uh, Sydney, Australia. And I was just down there at Christmas time. Now, that's not necessarily a garden vertical building, but the entire building is on the outside now. I mean, when it was first built, the, the plants hadn't grown yet. But today, when you go down there, the entire outside of that building is all green. Like, it's just all plant-based. Mm-hmm. So, you know... So for the listeners, if you want an idea of what we're talking about here in terms of vertical green, whether it's agricultural based or just even green in terms of, of, you know, plants that you would see in a forest or somewhere, that's a great example. 
It's a tall, high-rise building, and the entire and the entire structure on the outside is just all plant-based. See, when when I when I look at Detroit, one of the things that sort of disturbs me about the whole Detroit situation, which is sort of a half-abandoned city in a way, there are all these structures there. They could be stripped back to the concrete and turned into vertical farms. The roads yes. are there, the infrastructure's there, the utilities are there, right? They could be reused. It would regenerate the city. Yeah. What? And, you know, close close to Toronto here, you know, as we're developing this project with Centennial College and, and U of T, one of the things that have been identified is the area just north of Toronto called, uh, or northeast of Toronto called Scarborough. Yeah. There's a lot of vacant industrial buildings there that they just cannot lease out anymore. Businesses aren't wanting to position themselves there. Well, what if those buildings can be repurposed mm. and used for indoor agricultural practices? And if our project can help educate the businesses that can turn those buildings, then again, it becomes a real estate play as much as it is an agriculture or, or energy efficiency play, right? I, I like the idea of that. And also, that's the way it will get scale. If a real estate investment trust sees that opportunity and goes that route and it's successful, that will just open the floodgates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, one of our partners in the Carbon Impact Initiative, Avis and Young, you know, when we first started doing this project, I reached out to... My friend there, Rodney, and, and told him about this. And same thing, he's he was getting very excited about that. So you can definitely see how multiple markets will start seeing benefits. And that's what we want to do with this workshop we're hosting by the end of the summer, is making sure that we invite everybody from you know building experts, architects, to energy leaders, to finance people, to real estate, to agricultural experts. If everybody's in the room, and hopefully they're not all yes men and women, and they actually start giving us real things to think about as we develop this project, I think we're going to have a real game changer in our hand. And what I love about this also is people might be thinking, oh my goodness, this is such a new idea. It's really not that bleeding edge. Bleeding edge is dangerous for the market, for at least for companies that want to, to grow. But leading edge is where you want to be. You'll be right there at the cusp. And we're developing this with some leadership around the world already. So this group in out of Sweden called Plantagon are developing this large facility called the World Food Center. And it's a multi-story building, ultra green, where the north side of the building is leased out to uh, businesses and industry. The south side grows plants that are harvested by robotics and AI. The plants give off oxygen and people give off CO2. It's a perfectly healthy indoor environment that you can lease now at uh, premium cost. So, and then in the U.S., in Seattle, there's a group called Plenty. Um, They just received $200 million to develop their indoor farm project, vertical farm project, and they've just scooped the head of battery technology for Tesla as their chief operating officer. So this stuff is moving really, really quickly. And so I just want to make sure we have Canada's first, or at least one of the first in this area, not to compete, but to showcase and to make sure that our indoor farming experts, whether it's greenhouses or others, have a central place to go to collaborate, to look at new technologies, to test things. There's going to be a conference center in our building where people can come together and talk. So this it's getting very exciting for us. I mean, Andrew, yeah, Andrew, it seems to me like, you know, going back to net zero energy and net zero emissions, vertical farming tied into normal utilities is not green. Right. <laughs> I mean, the power consumption, the water use, all of that has to be considered. So the, I, I got to be thinking when you're, when you're leading these discussions that you have to lead with that net zero energy concept because yeah, we're, talk, we're, talk, we're talking about HVAC systems and lighting systems that are high intensity use in agriculture if it's going to yeah. be growing indoors, right? Yeah, and now it's actually, now is the tipping point. It, now is the right. time because we have the ability and the push for net zero energy when it comes to lighting, we've now got really good LED lighting systems, and Philips actually is pushing the market to support vertical farming. 
So you look at all the technologies that's out there. We can actually do this where 10 years ago, vertical farming did not make sense. The, the energy requirement was not there, but now we can do it. So now we've got to push it. And it's just, again, creating that better system, a better technology. Yeah, that's interesting. I really like this theme. I'd love to get more information, get you back on the show next year, maybe see how that's going, because anything we can do to help that message out, particularly the vertical farming message, would be awesome. So I think yeah. that's got real legs. I would invest in that all day, every day. With the- <laughs> I'm going to be calling you soon there, Mr. Yeah. I think there's something to think about without harping on it too long is yeah. we can solve the production problem, right? Yeah. Through vertical farming or soilless farming. We're losing our land so we can take that indoors and go vertically. That makes sense. Yeah. But unless we change our consumption habits and what we choose to eat, then we're only solving the smallest part of the bigger problem. So mm. going back to the, the issue is that the amount of resources and the amount of emissions caused by producing animals and animal byproducts for consumption is is where the real problem lies. So we have to not only reduce our reliance on these foodstuffs, which have just just started really the last 50 years since World War II. I mean, before that, like Andrew mentioned, it was a rarity to eat as much as we did. And coming from a, a very European background, as you can tell by my last name, I'm not shy. My family is not shy to eating to eating dairy and meat. Yeah. But they also never ate this level of consumption that we do now. So it's a matter of tapering it, but also knowing that if there are other alternatives that are healthy or even just more efficient, like in vitro meat, where they take a couple cells of a cow and then they generate that into a piece of steak. So yeah. it's it's not that you have to stop eating it. It's just that if you are going to eat it, try to find a method that is the most efficient use of resources and one that's also the healthiest as possible. Well, I think we you should we should make that your say the final say there because we've got to wrap up. We're coming into our time, but this, <laughs> this has been fascinating for me. Some of the numbers yeah, you you told us about then, Natasha, were mind blowing. That eighty percent of all antibiotics sold in the US goes into livestock. Yes. That is horrific. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. made, that made me shudder when you said that. Oh, I have more for you. Don't worry. I'll send you an email. <laughs> send me a scary email. <laughs> so, Natasha, Andrew, let's, uh, Andrew, well, we've got your coordinates and I'll repost them in the show notes. Natasha, have you got, uh, where can people uh, follow you, see you online, see what you're up to? Yeah, I think LinkedIn is the best. So just my right. first and last name. I'll spell it out because I think for anyone listening, they'll know no idea what it is. So it's a... Uh, Last name, A-R-S-E-N-I-J-E-V-I-C-H. So what did you make of that? You know, Adam, I'm, uh, as you know, my new office is overlooking downtown Calgary. And so I'm just staring at, you know, one of the high-rise buildings here. It's probably 40, maybe 50 stories tall. And if I, if I imagine that building having agricultural production in it, plant-based, and then if I take that same building and put cattle and pigs in there in that same building and then try to imagine the impact that that building would have on climate change society, clearly the plant-based building is more sustainable than the animal-based building. And, you know, I, can you imagine 50 stories of pigs and cows in a building, what it would take to raise how thousands and thousands of those animals in a vertical farm? You know, it's just, it's impractical, it's high energy intensity, the emissions would be terrible, the odors coming into that building would be terrible, where the plant-based one is, uh, 
you know, to me, it, it speaks to me. Yeah. Now, both you and I are meat eaters. Yeah, and not, that's not going to change. I'm certainly trying to reduce, but I don't think I could ever give it up. However, yeah. eating clean is a big thing for me. Yeah. So I try and eat as clean as I can. I try and eat uh, organically. And if I was a hunter, I would hunt and do the Joe Rogan thing, kill, yeah. kill an elk every year and then chop that bugger up and eat it. But, yeah. you know... That's not the way we're geared up. But the hydroponic uh, vertical farm is interesting because the other benefit we didn't touch on, I just realized, is you're not, there's no soil involved, right? So right. you're not putting nitrate in the soil, which is leaching into the, the water table and poisonous, right? So there's so many upsides to that. You know, reusing, uh, the, the whole Detroit thing fascinates me because it's, mm. you know, it's, Detroit in the 1950s and 60s was what San Francisco is today. Mm. It was a ridiculous place for the ballers and high earners. Everything was expensive. Everyone thought it was going to last forever, right? Fast forward to now, and it's just a wasteland. That's the future of San Francisco, by the way. So, yeah. you know, what do you do with that? If I'm king of America for a day, which I'm not because I'm mentally unstable, but if I was king for a day, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to, why are you not giving tax breaks to like, you know, you're spending money on God knows what. Why don't you take some of that money and say, right, these four buildings, we will give you, if you turn that, if you strip it, turn it into a vertical farm, no taxes for 10, 20 years. Mm. Right? When Apple build a place in Ireland, they get that deal. No taxes for 20 years, just bring the jobs. Yeah. Why are they not doing that? Yeah. And there's probably a hundred good reasons for that that I'm unaware of in my ignorance, but... <laughs> You know. But, you know, but you brought up a really good point earlier on, and of course, Andrew and Natasha sort of echoed yeah. on that. That is, is that the voice of change belongs in the voice of the people. Yes. And because there's no way that the limited amount of uh, voices that we have are going to change the economics. We're not going to change culture. We're not going to change the uh, all the voices in manufacturing and pharmaceuticals, blah, blah, blah. So if we want change, it it has to come from the ground up. I firmly believe that. I think you believe that too. So yeah. how do we empower society? I mean, this podcast is about property development, and that's what really one of the things that we talked about today. I mean, yeah. that, fall, that falls in that category. How do we empower society to get that voice out there to make a difference? It has to be. So I've come to realize culture is everything. It is the mm. aggregation of all the nonsense, laws, religion, beliefs, non-beliefs of everything, right? So it's a culture-driven change. And really, it's probably people younger than us, the generations behind us, that are going to lead that change. You know, we grew up, we were fortunate, we grew up probably in the best time ever, a time of abundance. I have meat when I want, I have fish when I want, right? That wasn't available to my parents till they got very old, right? So I think it's going to be younger people who are going to lead that change based on knowledge and information, not based mm. on what their mother and father think. That's going to be the difference maker. Yeah. So it becomes an educational thing. Hopefully it becomes trendy, not to eat McDonald's. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Because yeah. you're getting into poverty levels here and class issues, but it's not sustainable. Someone, there's a great saying, which I included in my blog this week, you know, we live on a, we're trying, our economic system is based on infinite growth and we live on a finite planet. At some point, yeah. there's a point in no return, right? Now, I'm not a prepper or a doomsday guy, but I do worry about what happens to my children, my grandchildren in the future, because I don't think they're going to have the resources available to them that I had. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you, I mean, it's always fascinating to study demographics and culture. And you go back in our 
in our lifetime, we have people in our families that went through depressions, went through world wars. Yeah. You know, they still they still live, and they, you know, they lived on a mentality of frugality. Yeah. You know, they had to make things last. They had to be sustainable. Like their their lifestyles depended on it. Oh you yeah, know, like, my dad was always turning me off about clothes by night. He thought I lived like Louis Quatorze, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, like right. a French king. The way I used to buy clothes and bikes and cars, you know, yeah, it was beyond his comprehension, really. Yeah. So if you looked at, I mean, if you look at that as a pendulum, you know, if you go back into the 1700s and the 1600s, you know, past the Roman era, because the Roman era, you know, in many ways is a, was an indication of where we are now. We're, yes. we're, we're right. But they collapsed, and what happened is the people had to have a change of attitude, and that was one of frugality. But it also created a, a have and a have not world too. So the pendulum really at one point in our generation was at one extreme where there was very little to live on. We had to be frugal. There had to be, you know, we had to be smart about what we, what we had and what we did with it. But then, you know, as economic conditions changed and wealth became readily available for many, many people, so did consumption. It wasn't enough to have one car. Now you had to have three cars. And if you had yeah. three cars, you needed a three-car garage. And if you had a three-car <laughs> garage, you had to have a, you know, and, and, and every room needed to have a TV. And, you know, and it just went on and on and on. And so the pendulum has, has swung to one of just total, just rape and pillage our, our environment and our resources. Uh, I think as baby boomers, this is where we apologize now for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, we I'll tell you a sorry. quick story, right? I was at a party and a friend my age, his son came up. To, so a friend my age was trying to download a song on iTunes and his son came up to him who was about 20 and said, for God's sake, Dad, why are you buying iTunes? Why don't you just have a subscription? And the, my friend didn't miss a beat. He said, look, son, I'm from the 1980s. We're Thatcher's children and this is the game. Whoever <laughs> dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> right? And that is a generational well, mindset. It is a generational right? mindset. You know, this Absolutely. is me, this is my stuff, and it's all my stuff, and I own it. Now, my kids don't think like that. They're yeah. happy to lease cars and rent music and rent videos. So we are moving into different times, but, you know, it's a big subject, man, and it's a very emotional topic. And I'm only just becoming awake to the environmental consequences of industrial farming and that, you know, and it I don't, doesn't make me want to be a vegan and go and shame people, but it does make me want to think about what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was great having the two on together, you know, both great voices of a very important yeah. topic. There's no doubt about it. We'll have, definitely have them on again. Yeah. It, it would be nice to hear the updates. And I also want to ask them next time, because next time we get them on, we'll ask about, uh, you know, vertical farming with the new uh, cannabis laws. I got to be thinking that, you know, get cannabis production is going to really take off. That's yeah. a perfect crop for vertical farming. It is. There ever it wasn't, right? And they will be the market leaders and the innovators in that space. I will make that prediction right here. Yeah. Because yeah. they will have the money. Anyway, mate, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, it yeah. for now. So I'll see you on the next one. All right, Adam. Okay. Always a pleasure, man. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.